so really the reason we fight is is to continue to give our members as smaller providers an opportunity to compete in the marketplace and to at least be one competitive voice in that market. Welcome to episode 202 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. It's common knowledge that big corporate internet service providers such as Comcast, CenturyLink, and AT&T have armies of lobbyists meeting the state and federal officials every day. But what do smaller local providers do when they anticipate an impact on their business due to proposed legislation, new rules, or changes in regulations? They join forces to make their opinions heard. Today, Chris shares his conversation with Matt Polka, President and CEO of the American Cable Association. The ACA represents cable, phone, and fiber-to-the-home operators and municipalities who describe themselves as small and medium-sized independent operators. These entities are vital in bringing service to smaller markets and rural areas. Check out their website at americancable.org. Here are Chris and Matt discussing the organization, some of the members' policy goals, and a few of the pros and cons of working as a smaller provider in today's market. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell. Today I'm speaking with Matt Polka, the president and CEO of the American Cable Association. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here with you today. Well, I was excited to run into you in Iowa for the uh, the Iowa Association of Municipal Utility Conference. Uh, I always meet great people down there, and I've long known about the ACA, um, but uh, I wasn't sure if all of the people who listen to this show have uh, heard of it. So uh, why don't you tell us what the ACA is? Sure, and thanks again for, for having me today. Uh, and and uh, not a surprise that you and I met at the IAMU uh, event not too long ago. Uh, because within the American Cable Association, we do have uh, quite a few municipal members. Uh, the American Cable Association has approximately 800 smaller companies, smaller independent broadband, phone, and video providers. Uh, we're in all 50 states. Uh, our 850 members represent about 7.5 million video subscribers. Uh, within our membership, uh, we have, uh, of those 800, and 800 companies or so, Forty uh, percent of our companies are traditional telephone-based companies, uh, and we have uh, more than 100 uh, municipally-based uh, entities as well that provide voice, video, and broadband uh, in their marketplaces. Uh, within uh, our ACA membership uh, of 800 companies, 80% uh, of our companies have 5,000 subscribers or fewer, and half of our members have 1,000 customers or fewer. So we're talking about very, very small entities that are providing voice, video, and broadband, primarily in small markets, rural areas, uh, and in a number of competitive situations where our members take on the big guys, Comcast, DirecTV, Verizon, AT&T, U-verse, uh, et cetera. One of the things that I found interesting about ACA is that you're headquartered in Pittsburgh. Um, I'm a originally a Pennsylvania boy myself, although on the other side of the state. Um, but I, I love a trade association that is not located within Washington, D.C. I, I have a strong bias. I don't, I don't hide it too much. Um, but uh, but you all must do things other than just lobbying the federal government. We were founded as a volunteer organization back in 1993, a year after Congress had re-regulated the cable industry, the entire cable industry, and the FCC had imposed uh, significant regulations upon all cable providers. I was general counsel of a small cable company at the time. 
a company called Star Cable Associates. And uh, my company, along with about 150 other smaller companies, got together and said, look, the big companies that were sort of representing our interests uh, as an association in Washington, they weren't uh, really focused on the unique concerns of independent providers in small markets and rural areas. Uh, so right then and there, we created an association uh, at that time called the Small Cable Business Association. Uh, we worked as a volunteer organization for four years, uh, and then after four years, our board, and I was a member of the board at the time, we said, look, Washington is a full-time job. We have to be thinking about our work uh, on a full-time basis, so let's go hire someone to run the association. Uh, and after looking around for a while, uh, the board came back to me and said, well, you're a cable guy, you're a lawyer, you've been working in Washington here for us for four years, would you do it? Uh, and I said, I'd be happy to do it, uh, but I had small kids at the time and didn't want to move from Pittsburgh, plus we didn't have any money. Uh, so we stayed in Pittsburgh, uh, and we've been there ever since, uh, although we have you know, quite a few folks that, that help us in Washington. Uh, but I think it does represent who we are as an association, that our members, while we work in Washington on policy matters before Congress, the FCC, and other agencies, we're not based there. Uh, and, our, and our members are out in their marketplaces day in and day out providing service. So uh, it's kind of nice to be outside of the Beltway and for all that it suggests. Your membership includes a number of small um, companies. I mean, obviously, a lot of small private companies. Some of them I know, some of them are supportive of municipalities uh, choosing to get into this, um, and others aren't. So how does the trade association kind of deal with that 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 tension between the private and the public models? One way we, we deal with the issues among our members is communicate. We spend a lot of time uh, with our municipal groups, uh, our municipal members, our telco members, our cable members, um, and within our board, within uh, uh, you know, various events that we do, where we're sharing uh, about you know, what our members' interests are and, and what they want to, to accomplish from a, a policy perspective. From, from a 35,000-foot level, when, when we look at our policy, um, virtually uh, all that we do from a standpoint of, in, uh, of ensuring our members' competitiveness, um, particularly around video issues, which you know, they all share uh, in dealing with purchasing uh, video content from you know, the four or five largest owners of content that are out there, uh, our members are in alignment. I mean, all of our members today are trying to provide greater choice to consumers, whether through skinny bundles, lower priced, uh, lower priced tiers, uh, even a la carte, uh, as well as maximizing their broadband plan to give consumers uh, more choice over it, whether through Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, etc. From a standpoint of, of many of the, the competitive issues that exist, uh, private versus public, between what you know you might consider to be our more typical cable members versus our more public-oriented municipal members. It, it hasn't been a, a, a major issue within our group. Uh, one of the things that we have tried not to do uh, is to uh, inter interfere or get involved with issues of uh, municipalities and their organizations uh, as they have sought greater funding. Although I will say that the, the one issue that we've been pretty consistent uh, uh, about advocating on that score over time has been um, the fact that we believe in, in general that funding, uh, taxpayer funding in, in general, should be used to help support um, broadband where it primarily does not exist today, uh, rather than in areas where it's already been built by private capital. 
So at times, you know, there there is some tension, uh, but but not as much as you would think, uh, because again of the way we've tried to communicate with members, uh, share in general our, our views, and, and work together uh, on this and many other issues. Well, let's talk about some of those those shared interests because uh, that's one of the things that the Institute for Local Self-Reliance really focuses on at scale. And I, I definitely agree that I think small privately owned cable companies have so much in common with municipal companies when we talk about the difference between those small actors and the biggest, the huge corporations. Um, so let me ask you a leading question, which is, uh, you know, why should we care about small providers? You know, isn't bigger better? Shouldn't we be excited about bigger companies that are that that are forming from these um, consolidation in the industry? Well, that's the theory, um, and, and that's oftentimes what people in Washington think, simply because you know the interests of, of larger companies, whether it's multi-video programming distributors like Comcast, Fios, Dish and DirecTV, or the big content providers, whether it's Comcast, NBC Universal. Um, you know, Fox News Corp., et cetera, um, that, Disney, ABC, ESPN. But the truth of the matter is, is that without smaller providers and the members that we represent and, and others that exist in the marketplace, there really wouldn't be um, those competitors in smaller markets, rural areas, um, and those that choose to compete against the large companies. The fact of the matter is, is that the largest uh, companies um, in, in the multi-video programming space, um, Comcast, Charter, Time Warner, uh, Cox, et cetera, they, they have built businesses that are largely moving away from, if not already moved away from, small markets, rural areas, uh, because there's just simply not enough density. Um, in fact, many of our member companies today that exist, um, exist because they have purchased systems at the end of the line uh, from some of the larger providers in areas in small towns where, where these larger companies did not want to serve. For our members, you know, that's their Times Square. That's their uh, Midtown Manhattan. Uh, th- those are the big markets that they choose to serve and also to live in, um, which is pretty common where you find our members living and working in their community. So it's vitally important for these small companies to exist uh, whether municipal, telco, uh, cable, because if they're not there, then chances are um, these smaller communities, which have every right to have broadband, just like you know Midtown Manhattan, may not get broadband uh, like uh, you know like like they desire. So that's why we fight for these smaller interests. And what is the impact on the smaller interests when there's these mergers? I mean, you know, I, I, we certainly joined you in opposing the uh, the Comcast Time Warner Cable merger. We won on that, and now uh, we're seeing that Time Warner Cable is just merging with Charter. So, what is the impact of consolidation on uh, smaller cable companies that you represent? It has a, a, a significant impact on potential competition uh, and ensuring that there is competition to uh, the large, you know, mega-merged interest. Um, a, a lot of our fight over the years, whether it's been Charter Time Warner, AT&T DirecTV, Comcast Time Warner Cable, um, and other mergers uh, down the line, Fox News Corp Liberty, uh, has been focused on control of content. When, when there are mergers uh, of this type, where you have the combination of essentially distribution providers, companies that own you know cable uh, cable operations, coupled with 
uh, other related interests than own programming that a cable operator provides to its customers, there's an incentive to be anti-competitive. And basically, it works like this. If if one of our members is in a market uh, with one of these mega merged entities, uh, and we buy and we have to buy programming from them, whether cable programming, sports programming, or even in some cases, broadcast programming with retransmission consent, th- there is an incentive for the merged entity to either want to jack up the price, raise the price to its competitors, so that its competitor has to pay a higher price for the same content, or to insert onerous terms and provisions in a, in a programming contract that make it less attractive to, to do a deal. And, and consequently, over the years, with some success, although unfortunately the FCC more recently has been less likely to impose such conditions, we have sought uh, conditions through the FCC to basically require that programming content has to be made available to competitors to the merged entities on fair and reasonable terms. And if, and if it's not provided on fair and reasonable terms to have a right to arbitrate. That certainly was the case in, in the merger of Comcast and NBC Universal uh, that was back about six or seven years ago, 2010, 2011. More recently, however, we've been pretty disappointed to see that the FCC did not impose uh, such conditions on AT&T's acquisition of DirecTV, uh, where there is control of uh, important regional sports programming. Um, and while the order is still pending, uh, we don't see this happening uh, to any significant degree, at least as it relates to, to current uh, multi-video programming distributors, to see any kind of programming distri- uh, conditions in, in the Charter Time Warner condition. Uh, although uh, there, there do seem to be some conditions as it relates to making programming available to online video distributors, that's fine. But by the same token, you know, we, there, there will be a number of companies small companies uh, that are wirelined companies today that will compete against Charter Time Warner who may not have the benefit of the same conditions, and, and we think that's a problem. Let me ask you what that actually means in terms of the, the bottom line of these um, cable companies. I mean, I think a lot of people assume that the cable industry, you know, we, we talk about often about the massive profits of Comcast and these other guys. Um, you know, even if the costs are a little bit higher for the smaller guys, aren't you, are you still making out like bandits? Um, quite the contrary, which usually is the case. And the reason for that on the wholesale side of the business, our, our members are you know the smallest providers that are negotiating with basically with a, a Comcast, NBC Universal, or you know what will be a Charter Time Warner or a Disney ABC. And, and there's just simply very little scale um, to, to try to negotiate any lower volume based price. Um, and consequently, because of that fact, as well as the, the the practices of these larger content providers, and the, the, their practices, as consumers well know, is to bundle their programming. So to obtain one important popular channel, you need to also <clears throat> take and pay for eight, nine, ten, or more channels from from the same programming owner whether people watch those channels or not. And most, most times consumers aren't watching those programming. You wouldn't expect a, a content owner to force content on you that you would actually want, right? I mean, that's the whole point of them forcing it on you. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's basically like a monthly annuity that they receive from uh, consumers through their video providers, uh, you know, cable companies, satellite providers, et cetera, that just 
goes back upstream to the big content owner um, who, who gets paid for their programming, whether a consumer watches it or not. And part of the reason why the, the large content companies like this bundled practice, which we do not like and are trying to break up, is because uh, they have made other deals upstream to sports leagues, to studios in Hollywood, for other original programming, you know, they've agreed to pay. Um, so they have to pay people upstream and they just come to us and they come to our consumers to basically say, if you want the popular channel, you have to take all of this other stuff, whether you like it or not. And, you know, that, that helps them to pay for other programming. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that we're at a point today where, where the bundle is just not affordable. Um, and that's why many of our members today are trying to provide more choices through slimmer bundles, uh, to give their consumers uh, more choices through broadband, uh, to try to sell consumers, you know, more of a of a lifeline basic level of service along with broadband. But ironically enough, um, while you think that 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 might be, you know, something that consumers would like, which they do, we can't really give as much of that programming to our our consumers as we like because of the way the large content companies uh, restrict carriage. Uh, we can only provide services like that um, to only a certain percentage, a small percentage of our, of our marketplace, or else uh, if, if we go over a certain percentage, then you know, we're, we're oftentimes forced to pay a penalty. Um, and, and it's expensive. Uh, so we, we would like to give consumers more choice, but these big content companies that control the content don't like to give it. Well, that's actually, I think, a really good point that I'd like to um, ask you one follow-up question on. And I wanted to say, I think Senator McCain's been one of the leaders in terms of trying to um, make the industry work better for folks like you. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, Both Senator McCain and also Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut uh, have been uh, uh, champions here. Senator McCain introduced a bill that, that would provide, uh, require more a la carte carriage of programming services. Um, and Senator Blumenthal was a co-sponsor of this. Um, we, we've supported those efforts. Uh, we want to see consumers have the ability to obtain programming, um, whether through slimmer bundles or even on an a la carte basis for expensive channels. Uh, but, you know, to date, he, he hasn't uh, been able to garner a whole lot of support of his colleagues. Uh, and the companies that own content have really pushed back hard. Uh, they don't want choice. That's one of the things that I've found amazing is just despite the – this is one of those issues in which I think you know 90% of the country broadly agrees on in terms of you know um, nobody wants to see the cable companies and the big content owners have more power. Um, and in fact, I would say – and I'm curious to what extent you would agree – I think – it's a little bit um, schizophrenic for the federal government to pretend that its national policy is one of encouraging competition, when in fact it allows a market structure in which Comcast and, and the bigger the biggest cable companies can ensure that they're paying, um, you know, just what seventy five percent or less in some cases of what their their competitors are paying because they get such an incredible discount uh, on the content. I mean, we've we've dealt with this in the past through robust federal legislation that restricted market power but we don't see any real effort like that in the in the country it's a hobby horse that i sort of beat every now and then so i'm sorry to lay all that on you no 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 it's it and it's something that we've been fighting as as smaller independent providers for you know the the entirety of our existence um and and it comes down to small versus large consumer versus consolidated uh, media conglomerate and it it has been a difficult issue to address 
and, and I think the answer to your question on why it has been difficult is, while, while on one hand there, there certainly is, um, and, and we agree with this, the desire as we fight in our industry to try to give our customers more choices, what what has uh, I, I think been a bit of a barrier for the federal government to act, you know, more directly on these issues is just the notion of ownership of your intellectual property, and that to some degree, uh, the Congress and the FCC, it's not really their role to intervene in a, a contract relationship between someone that owns you know, their, their own intellectual property and, and how they want to sell it. Um, that's where some of the, the arguments certainly have been by the larger companies who say, hey, this is, this is my programming content. Um, it's not up to the federal government to tell me how I'm allowed to sell it. Historically, I, I think there's, there, there is some legitimacy to that. But on the other hand, as we've argued, um, at what price to consumers? Uh, even Brian Roberts, you know, not long ago, several months ago, I, I remember seeing a headline where, you know, with his Comcast hat on said, you know, we, we, can't, we can't reasonably be, you know, continue to charge consumers what we're charging them for the bundle. Um, it is just at a point now where, I mean, it, it really is uh, an economic issue if you live in, in a small community where, you know, you're spending a couple of hundred dollars a month on your, your cable bill or your satellite bill. Um, and that's why consumers are, are uh, you know, demanding more choice. We're, on the video side, um, we, we certainly are working feverishly to renegotiate our, our programming agreements as they come up to try to give our, our members more choice to create slimmer bundles and bundles that are appropriate for the community. But at the same time, I think what's really making making the most change is our members' ability to provide uh, our, our customers with the best, fastest, highest capacity broadband service that we can because consumers themselves are finding ways to, to develop uh, greater habits through video choice, and, and that's what we want to give them. While, while the market uh, the video market and you know certainly the larger programmers are not fighting over themselves to try to give consumers more choice. They don't want choice. The availability of broadband to consumers it, it is empowering consumers to to find that choice, and that's what our members are trying to give to the to our customers. Just to put a, a bow around this, um, you know, this is an issue that the federal government has had to deal with for a long time. And, and I agree with you. I don't think we want to just see the federal government just um, arbitrarily sort of remaking markets and that sort of thing. But there is a, a long history, and I think in particular dealing with bookstores and other kinds of retail in terms of how wholesalers are regulated and things like that to try and prevent the kind of deformed market structure that we have today. Um, but I want to, as we're running out of time, I want to make sure we touch on something that I think is very important to me, and, and I know that it's important to you, and that's how federal regulations, whether it's from the FCC or elsewhere, um, how they fall differently on small providers than on the larger providers. It goes to why we exist as an association to represent these smaller uh, entities in, 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 in these areas. Um, we basically have fewer customers per mile compared to uh, the larger providers in major cities. Regulations typically have the same cost per mile regardless of whether you're Time Warner Cable in New York City or you know, one of our members in, in a small rural community. If you have fewer customers per mile, you have a higher cost of regulation per customer and a longer return on investment. Um, 
and basically the impact of regulation at times can be disproportionate on smaller companies. One of the things that we try to do is balance that regulatory impact out for our members through our advocacy efforts, which oftentimes would mean you know a longer transition towards compliance. In some cases, based on financial hardship, maybe you know maybe a waiver or or an exemption, but to to try to encourage the federal government to understand that one size regulation does not always work, particularly on smaller companies who are are trying to provide the best in broadband, phone, and video service in smaller markets, uh, but have unique circumstances compared to Comcast, AT and T, Dish, and Directv. So really, the reason we fight is is to continue to give our members as smaller providers, an opportunity to compete in the marketplace and to at least be one competitive voice in that market. You know, hopefully they can continue and, and, and be viable entities that can at least provide a robust wireline uh, service for phone, video, and broadband. I was just speaking with a small public utility district out in Washington State, and they were talking about, in particular, um, the the questions that they had to answer on the special access proceeding, which is a proceeding that, frankly, I'm supportive of, and I think there's significant problems in that market. But um, but I understand through talking with them that that just the FCC's the questions that they asked every um, operator to answer were didn't make sense for a lot of small providers. Does that sort of scenario does that come from just people at the FCC having a mindset of who they're dealing with, or, or you know, what kind of causes those sorts of things to happen? Well, uh, I think it's sort of a, a lack of focus on the impact of regulation on smaller markets and smaller providers. I mean, the, the FCC's efforts, whether it's, you know, you look at Title II or you look at the set-top box rulemaking or special access, in my view, are targeted more to address what they consider to be Anti-competitive concerns of larger MVPDs, um, Comcast, you know, or in this, in the case of special access, even I would say primarily telephone companies, two of them, three of them, maybe, yeah. but certainly not a hundred of them. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And and what where I think the FCC can do better for for consumers in these smaller markets is to recognize through its rulemaking processes. That, that more time needs to be taken uh, to determine the impact of its regulations on, on smaller providers that frankly didn't cause you know, the problems that they're trying to address. Uh, typically, the FCC will, at least in a, in a cursory way, look, look at the impact of its regulations on smaller providers, smaller communities. But at the end of the day, it, it pretty much ends up to be a you know, one-size-fits-all. Um, and, and frankly, you know, it, it just comes back to our point of view, which is, uh, look, we understand that we, we live and work in a regulated environment, um, and you know we're, we're okay with that. Um, but we would like uh, our regulators to just be mindful of the fact that you know we're not all AT and T, or we're not all Comcast, or we're not all Directv, um, and and we need to be treated differently in some of these smaller markets because it makes a difference. Um, if regulations at the end of the day force a small entity. Uh, to cease doing business because it can't afford the regulatory impact and that competitor is lost in a smaller market, then that's not good public policy. Um, and, and so we're trying to balance the need uh, to, to act in, in what is a regulated environment with the, you know, the impact on, on 
competition in smaller markets. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show to tell us more about the uh, the American Cable Association, Matt, and uh, and especially for helping us to better understand, I think, the differences between small businesses and massive global entities. <laughs> Happy to do it, and uh, great to, to talk with you today, and uh, look forward to talking with and working with you soon. Sounds good. That was Chris and Matt Polka, President and CEO of the American Cable Association. Remember, you can access the transcript for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter, where the handle is at muninetworks.org. Thank you to the group Forget the Whale for their song, I Know Where You've Been, licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 202 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs> <laughs>